our culture is obsessed with identity. From debates around sexual identity and identity politics to the popularity of personality tests to the plotline of virtually every Disney movie that gets made, it seems we are on a constant quest to discover who we are. And as Moana or Elsa or any other Disney princess will tell you, the best way to find yourself is to look within, to listen to the voice that's calling deep inside. This, of course, isn't unique to our postmodern, self-obsessed 21st century world. When asked to sum up what all philosophical pursuits could be reduced to, the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates simply replied, know thyself. Now my objective this morning is not to set myself against one of the world's greatest philosophers or to dash the dreams of every Disney princess or to undo your Enneagram results. That's actually not entirely true about that last part. There is a degree to which we must look within ourselves to know ourselves. But to only look within proves woefully insufficient. Our sermon passage this morning gives us a much better way. One that flies in the face of our cultural sensitivities. Because rather than look inward, this way calls us to look outside of ourselves. And rather than build us up, this way humbles us before someone far more glorious than we are. And one who speaks a word far more trustworthy than the voice we hear whispering in our own hearts. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Psalm 19. Psalm 19. If you don't have a Bible, you can find it on page 456 of that Red Pew Bible in front of you. Well, as the psalm superscript tells us, The psalm was written by Israel's King David. Its poetry is exquisite, and this psalm gives us some of the most famous lines in all of the Bible. In fact, reflecting on on Psalm 19, C.S. Lewis wrote, I take this to be the greatest poem in the Psalter, and one of the greatest lyrics in the world. Now, we won't be able to get much into the minutia of the psalm's poetic devices, uh, even though the English teacher that lives inside of me would love to do that with you. And much of, it, much of that, that beautiful poetry gets lost as it's translated from the original Hebrew anyway. But Lewis is right. Psalm 19 is a truly remarkable piece of poetry. But what David intends for us to see in this psalm is not his skill with the pen, but the beauty of the God who inspires it. Psalm 19 is about tasting and seeing the glory of the God who has revealed himself to us so that we might know him and enjoy him forever. And so David holds nothing back in this psalm. Psalm 19, to the choir master, The psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, 
which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Well, this psalm breaks down really into three main sections. Verses 1 to 6 celebrate the revelation of God's glory through the created order, and especially what we see in the heavens. And verses 7 to 11 celebrate creation's counterpart, the the revelation of God in Scripture. And verses 12 to 14 show how David responds to what the skies and God's word reveal about his own heart. And David's ordering of this psalm matters. There's a reason that verses 12 and 14 come at the end of the psalm and not at the very beginning. So David's self-discovery, it doesn't start by looking within. He starts by looking at the God who made him. So this morning, that's, that's what I want us to do. I want us to look where David looks by following those three sections of the psalm, the skies, the scriptures, and the self. And in each of these movements, David teaches us three things, and these are going to be our three points this morning. Number one, ponder the heavens. That's what we'll see in verses one to six. Number two, prize God's word. That's what we'll see in verses 7 to 11. Prize God's word. And then point number three, perceive your problem. Perceive your problem. That's what we'll see in verses 12 to 14. So point number one, ponder the heavens. Well, verses 1 to 6 immediately fling us into the realm of the cosmos, evoking the language and the imagery of the creation account of Genesis 1. And the Hebrew name that David uses for God there in verse 1, El, uh, which we simply translate as God, emphasizes his creating power and his divine nature. The first four verses focus on on God's glory in the skies, and then David switches to the particular testimony of the sun in verses 5 and 6. David presents every square inch of the heavens above, declaring, proclaiming, pouring out, revealing speaking, shouting, singing, shining, and delighting in the glory of their maker. Just look at the verbs there. This is an interstellar billboard putting God's eternal 
power and divine nature on full display. The galactic grandeur of God spelled out in the stars. And we can't even begin to wrap our minds around such cosmic glory. Just consider this. The sun is a mere 93 million miles from earth. Which means that if you and I, or Elon Musk, or Jeff Bezos, wanted to travel to the sun, and we went on a plane going 500 miles per hour, it would take us 21 years to get there. If we wanted to get to Pluto, or whatever astronomers call Pluto now, we'd be in the air for more than 900 years. If we wanted to get to the nearest group of stars, Alpha Centauri, which is only 4.3 light years away from us, by the way, it would take us 6 million years. If we wanted to get to the next nearest galaxy to our own, the Milky Way, the Andromeda Galaxy, which is just a measly 2.5 million light years away, or 15 quintillion miles, that trip would take us 4.2 trillion years. And to get to the furthest galaxy that the Hubble telescope has been able to detect, which is something like 13 billion, 13 billion light years away from us, or 78 sextillion miles away, which I think is a made-up number, (laughs) it would take us 20 quadrillion years to get there. Truly a galaxy far, far away. And if this wasn't staggering enough, here's where things get really mind-boggling. None of this is empty space. The universe is literally bursting at the seams with stars. It's estimated that our galaxy has 150 to 200 billion of them. And the Milky Way is just one of 150 billion galaxies. Which means that according to people a lot smarter than me, there are more stars in the galaxies of our universe than grains of sands on all the beaches and deserts of Earth. Truly, the heavens are a theater for displaying the glory of God. Truly, the skies proclaim his handiwork. And guess what? This show never stops. It never stops. Look down at verse 2. Day to day and night to night, the song of God's glory is played on repeat. The heavens are always declaring, always proclaiming, always singing the praises of their maker. The skies literally never shut up. But here's the twist. Look at verse 3. Though this is a ceaseless song, a song that never ends, it's also a silent song. The heavens, the skies, day and night, they all speak, but not in words we can hear. So their song is ceaseless. It's inaudible. But look at verse 4. It's also pervasive. It goes out across the whole world, to every corner of the world. The Apostle Paul, actually, he he picks up verse 4 in Romans 10, 18, and he applies it to 
the spread of the gospel to all the nations. Now, Paul's not saying, nor is David here in Psalm 19, that creation testifies to God's saving power in the gospel. We can't look at the stars and be saved. The stars don't give us the way of salvation. But the way the heavens proclaim God's glory to the ends of the earth anticipates the way that Christ's people will proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth, which is what Paul is talking about when he refers to this in Romans 10. The point is, God communicates with the whole world through what he's made. There's no place, no place on planet earth not exposed to his glory in the heavens. God's sound system in the skies reverberates the world over. This is the point David makes by drawing our attention to the sun, beginning there in the second half of verse 4. He uses two illustrations to, to show how the sun uniquely bears witness to God's glory. The first being a groom ready to meet his bride on his wedding day. You know, one of the things I enjoy most about getting to officiate weddings is the unique vantage point that it gives me to the bride and groom. From the crowd, it, it can be really hard to make out the faces up front, but when you're standing up there on the stage with the groom, you can see the pure, unadulterated joy and elation on his face when those doors swing open and he sees his bride walking towards him. He can hardly contain the anticipation and, uh, and the enthusiasm and the excitement that's been building all day long. And that's what David is saying that the sun is like as it testifies to God's glory. And the second comparison David makes complements this picture. When the sun rises each morning, it does so with the joy of an Olympic runner exploding out of the starting blocks. You remember in the 2016 Summer Olympics uh, when Usain Bolt turned and he smiled for the camera as he neared the finish line in the, the, the semifinal heat for the 100 meters? Do you remember that? Bolt just grinning from ear to ear as he as he sprinted past the, the fastest runners in the world? That's the sun right now. That's what David is saying the sun is doing right now. And the track that it runs stretches from one end of the heavens to the other. The sun is circling the solar system with nothing hidden from the light of its presence, nothing that doesn't feel the heat of its rays, all of it pointing to the total expanse and extent of God's rule and reign over all things. And here's the thing with the sun. It never stops doing this. The sun is always rising and shining with this kind of joy and elation somewhere in the world. Ever since the moment God spoke the words, let there be light, the sun has been running its course with joy. It's never had to stop and catch its breath. It's never had to take a water break. Even when the, the clouds keep us from seeing it on cold, snowy days like today, the sun is somewhere beaming, beaming with the glory of its maker. And here's the point. Here's the point with all of this that David is making. If this is true of the sun, 
How much more so should this be true of us? The crowning achievement of God's creation. How much more should we, those made in the very image of God, those who move and live and have our being in him, how much more should we explode with unending praise to the one who made us? Friends, God doesn't intend for us to look at all, of he's, all that he's created and feel nothing. David's not writing these lines merely to shore up or to sharpen our theology. No, these lines are meant to elicit exaltation in our souls. This is about worship. Everything the sun touches, everything the sun touches was made so that we might enjoy God and be enthralled by the radiance of his glory. God intends for us to worship, to exalt, to delight in, to bow before his glory and power like the heavens do, day after day, night after night. This is what Paul condemns all of humanity for failing to do in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. So the problem isn't with God or with the stuff that he's made. Creation is doing exactly what God designed it to do. From day one, all it's ever done is display and declare his eternal power and divine nature to us. We're the problem. We are the problem. We're the ones who have plugged our ears and shut our eyes to the glory of our maker. And so we need a better word. We need God to speak and to break through the silences of nature and the sin of our hearts and to reveal his very heart to us. We need God to speak with words that not only elicit our praise, but that cut us to the core and give us new eyes that see and ears that hear in faith. This leads us to our next point. Our next point. Point number two, prize God's word. So though we can infer something about God by looking at the world he's made, we would know nothing about his true nature or his heart for sinners if he hadn't revealed himself to us in his word. But his word isn't the kind of information dump that we've come to associate, associate with most of our ordinary human communication, a kind of data transfer. God's word doesn't come to us the, the way a Wikipedia page does. God's word is, is much more personal than that. Virtually every word that David crafts in verses 7 to 11 is meant to point us to the personal nature of God's word. Notice first the name change that God gets in verse 7. 
In verse 1, David used the more general term, the general name for God, El. Now he switches to the personal and the covenantal name of God, Yahweh, which God gave to Moses and the Israelites on Sinai. This name lies behind the capitalized Lord of our English translations. And this is the only name that God, or the name for God that David uses in the rest of the psalm. So six times in verses seven to nine, and then a final time as he closes in verse 14. So David is, is putting the accent on the way that God has acted in a, in a personal and covenantal way with his people through his word. So when God speaks to us in his word, he, he gives us something far better, something much more intimate than what we find and hear in nature. Isaac Watts captures this well in his hymn, The Heavens Declare Thy Glory, Lord. He says this, The heavens declare thy glory, Lord, and every star thy wisdom shines. But when our eyes behold thy word, we read thy name in fairer lines. Now, most immediately, the nouns that David uses in these verses, things like law, testimony, precepts, commandments, rules, they all refer to the divine law that God gave the Israelites in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And while each of these nouns has their own nuanced meaning, I think David is treating them synonymously. So we're not supposed to see them necessarily in isolation from, from one another, but as a comprehensive whole, emphasizing that every one of God's words are beneficial for us. And as new covenant people who now have the complete canon of God's word, that means all of God's word, all of God's word from Genesis to Revelation are given to us by God for our good. And the adjectives and verbs that, that David uses to describe God's word make that evident. So, so look at the language he uses. Verse 7, he says, The law of the Lord is perfect, meaning it's whole, complete, flawless in its wisdom that it has truth without any mixture of error for its matter, as our own statement of faith says. Because God's word has God for its author, we can be sure that what God's word says, God himself says. Because God is perfect, his word is perfect. What God is, his word is. And look what his word does. Verse 7, it revives the soul. It spiritually restores what sin has ruined. This is the same way that David talks about the Lord restoring his soul in Psalm 23 too. God's word breathes life and light where there was once death and darkness. God's word is, is also sure and it makes the simple wise, which means it's a trustworthy guide for knowing God. When we read God's word, we can be confident it's not lying to us. We can be confident we're reading a reliable guide that gives us everything we need for life and godliness. Sin makes us stupid and simple-minded, but God's word makes us wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is what the scriptures did for, for Timothy as, as his grandmother and, and his mom poured this word over him as a child. So parents, parents of, of children, of small children, that should encourage you as you disciple your, disciple your own children with this word. 
God's word is, is also right and it brings joy to our hearts. Verse 8. Meaning that it's always morally upright and obeying it produces life. Whatever our culture or, or our neighbors or our classmates or our coworkers might say to the contrary, God's word at all times and in all places determines what is morally pure and true and good. And what will truly bring us joy is not rejecting or casting off this word, but holding fast to it and building and basing our entire lives upon its moral foundations. Even if that means looking foolish, backwards, or out of touch with the world around us. And not only is God's word morally upright, it is also radiantly pure and it gives us eyes to see its beauty. God's word is a holy word. What he demands of his people is never immoral or unjust, never inappropriate, never even questionable. His word is immaculate, unstained, unsullied, and it testifies to the loveliness of God's holiness. Where our sin was once repelled by God's holiness, his word now makes it attractive to us. And this holiness produces fear in us, which is why David goes off-road a little bit in verse 9 to talk about the fear of the Lord. But this off-roading actually makes perfect sense because reverence and awe is, is the natural response to God's holiness. And it's this healthy fear of God that prompts us to pay attention to his word. And because God is so inexhaustibly glorious and holy, we will never cease to worship, worship him. Our worship of God and our fear of the Lord will endure forever. His word is also true and righteous altogether. Meaning when God speaks, he never renders an unjust decision. He never says the wrong thing. He will always stand against evil. And his words will always do right and enact justice. And all of this language, everything that David has packed in to, to verses 7 to 9, all of this language is meant to spotlight the supreme worth and value of God's word. This is why David says what he says in verses 10 to 11. They're a culmination of the waterfall that starts in verses 7 to 9. If everything that David just said about the word of God is true, if all that is true, then knowing God through his word is without question, no debate, without question, it's our highest good and should be our highest aim in life. That's why David says that it is more desirable than gold, and more delicious than honey. How can a book be better than those things? How can, how can this book be better than those things? Because this book is not like other books. This book is the means by, by which God communes with us. Which means that if we truly want to be satisfied, then we, need, then we need more of this word in us and not less. We need more of this word in us and not less. We need to commit more of our heart and our time to its, its way and its instruction. 
Nothing else will satisfy because nothing else gives us God like God's word. This is why we as a church shape our corporate worship entirely around this word. It's why week after week we gather to hear it preached. It's why you woke up on a cold, snowy morning and came to church. It's why we seek to disciple and counsel one another with it. It's why our children's ministry volunteers are teaching it to our children right now. It's why we have things like a pastoral residency so we can raise up more men to go out and preach it. This word is what God uses to build his church and it's why the gates of hell don't stand a chance against it. To settle on anything else, to settle on anything else when we have this Word would be like going to the finest steakhouse in the world, having the waiter come out to to your table and tell you that you can order whatever you want totally on the house. And instead of, of ordering the purest, rarest, most expensive steak that you can find on the menu, you order a box of Kraft mac and cheese off the kid's menu. You would never do that. that. That would be ridiculous. But that is exactly what we do every time we neglect God's word. Every time we give more attention to our Instagram or our 401ks or our grades or our bodies than we do communing with God through his word, we are choosing Kraft mac and cheese when we could have steak. There is literally nothing more profitable you could do with your time than spending more of it in this word. The only resolution you need to to make sure you actually follow through with this year is spending more time sinking your teeth into the feast that is God's word. There are any number of Bible reading plans out there that help you do that, but I think one of the best is is the one of, of Robert Murray McShane's. It takes, you, it takes you through the whole Bible in a year and the Psalms and the New Testament twice. There are copies of that plan for you to take at Connecting Point if that would help you uh, to get in the word more. You know, if you're not a Christian, if you're not a Christian or maybe you're, you're skeptical of God's word or maybe you're here and you're just trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing, I wonder what all of this talk about God's word sounds like to you. I wonder how it falls on your ears. You know, perhaps the last word that you would use to describe the Bible is trustworthy. Perhaps you think this book is filled with error and inconsistencies and and contradictions, that it's historically inaccurate. And that it's impossible to accept as authoritative because of how culturally obsolete or socially regressive it seems. Now that for you, the, the Bible doesn't help, but it actually prevents you from having a personal relationship with God. But friend, here, here's the thing that David would have you see in these verses. That far from being the enemy of a personal relationship with God, his divine, his divine, authoritative, and perfect word is actually the precondition for it. It's the very foundation for it. 
See, God is not a private God. He gave himself up to us the moment he opened his mouth and spoke the words, let there be light. And he has been giving himself up to us ever since. And he's given himself up to us in the most profound and personal of ways. He's given us the lights above and the light of his word to help us know him and to enjoy him. So God's word is not the problem. God's word is not the problem. Once again, we're the problem. We're the problem. Which leads us to our final point. Our final point. Point number three, perceive your problem. So in these final verses, David reflects on his own heart, his own heart in relation to God. He's gone from the highest heights of the heavens to the riches of God's word and now to the depths of his own soul. In Psalm 8, when David reflected on God's glory in the heavens, he saw the supreme dignity of man. And now he sees the sin and the limitation that corrupts us all. Here's how John Calvin explains this process in his opening pages of of the Institutes. Man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating him, God, to scrutinize himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us. Unless, by clear proofs, we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. Friends, what we, what we find when we look up at the heavens and look down in the scriptures is that there is a God. There is a God. But when we look within, when we look at our own hearts, we find that we're not him. That we are guilty before him. That we have no hope apart from him. God uses the, the double-edged sword of the heavens and of his word to cut open our hearts, to expose our sin and to cause us to see our need for his mercy and his grace. That's what's happening in verses 12 to 14. This is why, this is why David asks God to declare him innocent, to forgive him, to create in his heart the will and the desire to obey God's commands. And David, David doesn't just recognize himself to be a little guilty before God. He counts his tra- transgression Verse 13, as great transgression. He wants God to forgive him of of the sins David himself doesn't even know he's committed. Hidden faults and the sins that he's done with a high hand against God. Presumptuous sins. So according to Numbers 15, 27 to 36, the Old Testament law distinguished between sin that was considered unintentional or hidden not because it was too small or insignificant to see, but because it had become so common that it just 
didn't even register. It was too characteristic of a person. But some sin was so blatant and so out in the open that it was considered presumptuous and done in deliberate disregard to God's clear command. And David is asking God to protect and guard him and keep him from both kinds. Whatever sin he has that that would condemn him in the courtroom of God, that's what David wants God to declare him innocent of. This This is the prayer of a man who recognizes that any trace of sin makes him guilty in God's eyes. Any trace of sin. But notice where this desperation drives him. Notice notice where his problem takes him. It doesn't drive him into despair or deeper into sin. It doesn't drive him into self-pity or doubt or to blame God or to blame others or to blame his circumstances. Nor does it drive him to to try and clean himself up, just work harder. No, as, as David perceives the problem of his sin, it drives him straight into the merciful and the gracious arms of the Lord, the only one who has the power to redeem him. Did you notice, you notice in, in verse, verse 12 how, how personal all this becomes? Look at all the personal pronouns David starts using in verse 12. Declare me innocent. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless. Let the words of my mouth and my heart, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And perhaps the most surprising one comes in verse 13 when he refers to himself as your servant. That should shock us. Your servant? How, how can a sinner like David refer to himself as God's servant? What gives him the right to speak on such personal terms with this holy God? Faith does. It's faith in God that allows David to speak like this. David is trusting God to provide the mercy and grace that he needs to be counted blameless and innocent in God's courtroom. That's why he calls him my rock and my redeemer. Friends, this is what it looks like to keep God's word and to enjoy the reward. See, David's not praying for a kind of sinless perfectionism that that comes out of a, a perfect obedience. He's pleading with God. He is pleading with God to act in accordance of his character and to create in his heart what God's word commands of him. He's asking God to, to make him a sacrifice and an offering of praise and worship that's acceptable, that's pleasing in God's sight. Verse 14 is, that's the language of consecration. He's looking upon his own heart and he's asking God to give him a new one. He's submitting himself entirely to the will of God as a sacrifice of worship. 
But David first needs God to act on his behalf. Only when God speaks, only when he declares him innocent, only then will David be blameless and declared innocent. But herein lies the real drama of this psalm. The real drama of this psalm and the real predicament that you and I find ourselves in as sinners. The heavens and the scriptures, they both testify rightly and without fault and fail to the glory of God. They're doing their jobs, but not us. Not us. We fall woefully and sinfully short. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, Paul tells us in Romans. We all stand condemned. David bears witness to that. The heavens above, they declare, they they bear witness to that. God's own word bears witness to this. Which means that we all need God to declare us innocent and to make us acceptable in his sight. But how's that going to happen? How's God going to justify sinners? Only by his grace as a gift through the redemption in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a perfect and acceptable offering for our sin to be received by faith. Jesus is the one who always delighted to give praise and honor to his Father in heaven, who always desired perfectly to do the will of God, who always kept God's law, and who always prized God's word over the pleasures of this world. And not only did Jesus love God's word, he was and is God's word. Because Jesus was faithful to God's word in every way and because he offered up himself to God as an acceptable sacrifice, even unto death on a cross, we can be declared innocent of our sin against God and justified by his grace. But only if we receive this gift of grace through repentance and faith. So friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian Repent and believe. Receive this offer of grace and faith today. And for those of us who are sheltering in the rock of Christ today by faith, this is glorious, gloriously freeing news for us. Because this means that our assurance of God's acceptance of us is not based upon our own righteous perfectionism, but on Christ's. It's it's based on Christ. Our reward with God doesn't depend on us keeping the law perfectly, but on Christ already keeping the law perfectly for us. And so even when we fail, we can draw near to this throne of grace, confident that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. This is what David is doing, and he's calling us who are in Christ to do. We can look to Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, 
rather than feel crushed under the weight of our sin, we can confess it. We can bring it into the light, knowing that God is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness because we have an advocate with the Father in Christ Jesus the righteous. This is good news for us. Know thyself. That's the great mantra of the day. Know thyself. But what a shame. What a shame if your voice is the only one you ever hear. The only one you ever listen to. The heavens declare a better word. And God's word offers us a better way. Friends, whose voice will you listen to? Will you listen to yours or to the one who made you? Yours or to the one who sent his son to save you? Let's pray.